0: Hey, it's producer Chris from The Spark. Our esteemed host, Stephanie James, is on a well-earned vacation, soaking up the rays in sunny Hawaii. So this week on the show, we're taking a look back at one of our favorite early episodes, our conversation with Dr. Mark Ben. Dr. Ben is a licensed psychologist and recently retired adjunct professor at Colorado State University who's studied prejudice, specifically the prejudices that we're all born with, that we have whether we realize it or not, where that prejudice comes from, and how we can come together by opening ourselves up to exploring each other's differences. Please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Ben, and stay tuned next week for an all-new episode of The Spark with Stephanie James, right here on NOCO FM.
1: And you know what I know? I can't learn from people who think and act and smell and eat all the same foods I eat. I can only learn from people who are different from me. I already know what I think, and I know what the people who are like me think. So I have to hang out with people who are vastly different. And again, that's counterintuitive.
2: Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Mark Ben, and our topic is from prejudice to understanding. A reminder that we'd like your questions and feedback about this and future shows. Please send your questions to The Spark at krfcfm.org. Dr. Ben is a licensed psychologist and recently retired adjunct professor at Colorado State University. He has traveled nationally for the last 20 years as a diversity trainer, mediator, conference keynote presenter, and is also the author of the book, Stories from the Couch and Other Telling Tales, written in 2008. We're gonna start with a clip from a TEDx talk that
1: Dr. Ben gave last year. Until you can look at your own prejudice, until you can look at the fact that you have prejudice and you can start to examine it like an alcoholic or an addict has a problem with addiction before they can do anything about it, I have to realize that I am prejudiced. And so I'm gonna stand here and I'm gonna say something new, it might sound a little crazy. I am a racist, sexist, ageist, classist, homophobic, heterosexist, able bodiest, and lookist person. And with all due respect, so are you. So are you.
2: Welcome to The Spark. I'm really grateful to have you here with me. Thanks, Stephanie. It's good to be here. What inspired you to pick this
1: particular subject in this TED Talk? Well, for me personally, I have never felt like I fit anywhere. So I've always wanted to try and fit everywhere. And so I learned very early in life that being a chameleon was actually a good thing, although it made me struggle with my own identity about who I was. I wasn't a woman, but I wanted to hang out with women. I wasn't black, but I played a lot of basketball, so I hung out a lot with a lot of black guys. My dad was a hairdresser, so most stereotypes are based in kernels of the truth. So I hung out with a lot of gay guys. And my goal in life was always to get along with folks and understand the world from their perspective. And so I was always interested in this because it helped me feel like I belonged when I never felt like I did.
2: I think everyone obviously struggles with that at certain points in their lives. Junior high being one of those times, through high school, through college, and truly, it's a life journey. Mm. It it doesn't end trying to identify, get in touch with who we truly are. But for you, it sounds like I mean you actually had some unique experience early on, right? That led you to think about this, and and one of one of the pieces from. The TED Talk that really struck me was when you're talking about, in your house, you couldn't say the N-word. Mm-mm. You grew up not feeling like, I'm, I'm not prejudiced, right. I have all this exposure to all this diversity, we can't say the N-word in our house. Right. I'm curious about when, that, when you became aware of that within yourself.
1: Well, when I would get beat in my house for saying words that I wasn't allowed to say. Um, when I learned that the words in my house that were curse words were different than the words in other people's houses. Um, I come from a pretty low-income, blue-collar, mostly white neighborhood, and to hear the N-word was not uncommon. To hear people call dirty Jew was not uncommon. To hear people talk about women in disparaging ways was not uncommon. And so I realized that the way people talked outside my house and the way people talked inside my house was very different. I grew up in Philadelphia, okay. the northeast part of Philly. Okay. Um, but you couldn't call a woman the B-word or the C-word. I mean, if anybody ever said that in my house, you'd have got whooped. And so for me, it was very confusing early on. Like, I didn't know what I had to say inside my house versus what I had to say outside my house. And to belong in both places meant I had to be two different people. That's the experience for me of being a chameleon and learning how to be a different color depending on where I was.
2: I grew up in little Wonder Bread, Fort Collins, Colorado. I didn't even know about the N-word, number one. We just didn't have a lot of black people Mm -hmm. as far as in the school district, anything like that. But I had a rare experience because my father was a professor at CSU in economics, and he did Kellogg's Foundation workshops in Kenya, Africa. Mm. So as an agricultural economist, he would go and do these workshops where he would teach people how to grow basically cash crops. And so we had, from the time I can remember, I mean... I always, we always had black people at our home. Mm -hmm. You know, dad was always inviting his exchange students over for dinner. Mm -hmm. So I I didn't have that in my head. I didn't Mm -hmm. get that. Mm -hmm. And like, I didn't understand. I remember in junior high, there was one black student. And I remember, you know, people saying, don't date him. And I I didn't get it. I Mm -hmm. really didn't. So I, I had a lot of the same experience of going like, You know, I'm not prejudiced, I'm not Mm -hmm. racist, Mm -hmm. but we'll talk about that more because I definitely later on found out and actually through your talk heightened my experience of looking at where are the areas that I am. What do you think the impact of prejudice is in our world today and how does it psychologically affect
1: people? Well, I think this is part of the problem is that nobody thinks they're prejudiced. And like I say in the talk, until we can admit that we have a problem with prejudice, we're never gonna be able to do anything about it. I have to admit I have a problem before I can look at that problem. And so most of us go through life defending how prejudiced we're not. And I think the opposite approach would actually be helpful for us about how prejudiced I am. For me to say I'm not prejudiced is absurd. Of course I'm prejudiced. Do I have certain views about women? Sure I do. I'd like to pretend I don't. I'd like to pretend I'm a pro-feminist man and I really get it. But every day I get to recognize from my women friends who call me out, that I don't get it. So for me, it's, it's about identifying and coming to grips with the fact that we have a problem and then looking at the problem. And the key thing for me is that none of us think we have skin in this game. This is why the stuff that's going on right now with the Weinstein stuff is so fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me in that finally men are getting to see that we have skin in the game, that I've paid a price for the fact that men have objectified women for all these years. And the price I pay is that when I drive down the road and I see you on the side of the road and your car might be broken down and I want to stop to help you, you're gonna look at me with suspicion when I'm really just getting out of my car to try and help you. And so I have paid a price for the role that men have had and the work is for me to hold other men accountable and hold myself accountable for the ways in which we've treated women and black folks and poor folks and people in dis- with disabilities and gay, lesbians, bisexuals. And so as we learn that we have skin in the game, white, heterosexual, Christian, able-bodied men, mostly, we will start to realize that we've paid a very, very horrible price for the fact that we've been in positions of power that have objectified folks that we've hurt without even realizing or intending to hurt.
2: Well, and, and that's one of the things that that I actually had written a question about because you talk about that in your TED Talk. You you mentioned this how especially white people, you know, especially this white heterosexual temporary able-bodied males, they can't smell the air when it stinks in regards to prejudice. So, can you talk more about that? What what causes that kind of blindness that you're talking about? That people aren't able to check in with themselves to even see it.
1: Well, that's the thing about privilege is you can't see it and you can't smell it. You know, the, the joke is if you're in a, in a room that smells really, really bad for a really long time, you stop smelling the stink of the air. That's just the way the air smells. And for people who have been historically oppressed, the air smells pretty bad a lot of the time. And when you as a woman tell me that you didn't feel safe, for example, walking through a parking garage because I have always felt safe, I might take a deep whiff and say, I don't smell that. And so the goal here is for all of us is to understand that your experience is your experience, and it doesn't mean that it's not true just because it's not my experience. And that's a concept that I think is very difficult for folks because we're kind of egocentric, that I'd like to think that the world through my eyes is the way the world really is. And it is through my eyes. It doesn't mean it is through yours. And so really the work here is for us to understand each other um, from the other perspective, which is difficult and often painful. Because it means that I might have to acknowledge that I have hurt you. And whether I have intended to hurt you or not is not the issue. So it's not about the intent. It's about the impact. Because in my heart of hearts, Stephanie, I believe people are basically good. I believe in people. I really believe that we're good at our core. Um, What I have to also understand is that my goodness isn't enough. That my intent to help you may have been patronizing and objectifying. And if that's your impact of what I've done, then I have to hear that non-defensively, lovingly, kindly. And that's a really hard place for me to get to uh, because I want to believe I'm really good. And sometimes I might have to look at, hmm, maybe I got some stuff to work on here. And you help me get better by giving me that feedback. The goal here really is when you give me feedback, I say, thank you, not screw you. And oftentimes when people give feedback, we're often saying, no, screw you. That's not true.
2: Right, we're defensive right exactly. away. Yeah, exactly.
1: we can't hear that. That's correct. And that's the intuitive response is to be defensive. If you're on a rock in my head, The intuitive response is to catch that rock and throw it back at you or to duck. But the best response is counterintuitive. Thank you. Tell me more. And if I could teach men in my therapy, I do a lot of couples therapy. If I could teach men how to say those three words, tell me more, I swear their relationships are going to improve. Simple as that. Don't solve the problem for me. Tell me more is what their wives are often telling them.
2: That's that's one of the things in my couples therapy too. My words are, "Help me understand."
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Same, yeah. Yeah,
2: same thing. What, yeah. what what were you feeling right then? What happened?
1: Right, right. but that's counterintuitive because it means oh, going towards the pain, and I don't want to go towards the pain. You know, we don't have to tell a 2-year-old to take their hand off a burner when they put it on there. They know intuitively to take their hand off the burner. And so for us as a species to move forward, we have to move into the pain. One of my favorite lines from a Reader's Digest that I read probably when I was 10, and it said if two people agree on everything. There's no need for one of them. And so I just love that because what that means is that if we hang out long enough, we're going to disagree. And in the U.S. culture, our disagreements usually lead us to walk away from each other or fight with each other. And if we could learn that our disagreements should lead us to engage and learn, then we're going to connect. When my partner and I, when we have fights, when when she and I have discussions that are conflictual, the goal is to walk away from closer and better understanding each other, not less. And that's hard because I don't know how many role models you got for good fighting. I got none. In my house, when people started to fight, there would be a hole behind where the doorknob was. I thought houses came with holes behind the door for the doorknob to rest. And that's how fights were in my house. And I think most people could probably uh, describe their houses as conflictual fighting was not healthy or helpful. Right. Well, an interesting layoff in my household, there wasn't
2: fighting, Mm -hmm. which I think is the extreme Uh, other example. Mm -hmm. So I had zero model of what does this look like? Um, I thought if you fought, then the relationship was over. Something was bad. Because right. the first time that my parents fought, literally that I ever heard them, mm-hmm. pretty soon they were getting divorced.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what is, I had. yeah. So the work is to learn how to fight, not to not fight. Couples come to my office and say, will you, help me, will you help us learn to stop fighting? And I say, no, you're in the wrong place. I'm an East Coast Jew. We fight. That's what we do. <laughs> we fight with each other. And the hope is at the end, I understand you better, um, maybe like you more, but maybe not agree with you when we're done. And that's Okay. You're yeah. not going to agree on everything, right? That, that's fine.
2: You know, interestingly, I was I was out to dinner with my husband last night, and uh, I know I've shared this with you before. He and I have different views, whether it's politically or on some religious subjects. I mean, some things that could really cause conflict in a relationship. And I think because we were really good friends before we got together, the thing that we're able to do from the very beginning, and I'm not saying it doesn't get heated, because mm-hmm. it gets heated, mm-hmm. but we're able to tolerate each other's differences. Right. And I'm telling you, I was telling him how much I appreciate that he pushes me mm-hmm. so hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the beginning, sometimes I would say, I got to go take 15 minutes. Right. right. <laughs> you know, I, I I am hot right now, right. but I want to continue this conversation when I get back. Right. Because we were able to see it wasn't just, it wasn't about him as an individual or a person. It's like, these are the ideas or the beliefs that we hold dear. Right. Mm-hmm. Mine doesn't have to be yours. Right. For me to still love you. Right. Right. Great. But I want to learn how to understand you. So I, I was telling him how much I appreciated him, as odd as this sounds, challenging my thinking and helping me grow into a better person because he did so. And right. so that's that's when you talk about that, I mean, that's exactly what we've had to do, learn how to be in that place where I'm, I can tolerate hearing something that I don't like. It doesn't land well with me.
1: When what you're doing essentially is what I talk about in the talk, and that's you're meeting these certain conditions that have to exist for us to be able to have healthy disagreement. We have to be of equal status. We have to share intimate beliefs in an atmosphere of cooperation. So if we do those three things over and over again, either as individuals in a couplehood or in a culture where there are black folks, brown folks, women and men, and people with disabilities and fill in the blank, as long as those groups are able to sit down and lovingly talk in an atmosphere of cooperation, sharing intimate beliefs and they are of equal status, no power differential in the discussion, which is hard, then we're going to come to a deeper understanding, even if it's a disagreement. And that's just not modeled. I love what you're saying. Where was it modeled? Your house was modeled to have silence. My house was modeled to have doors broken. And so, okay, where did we learn this? From Claire and Cliff Huxtable with, uh, you know, 26 minutes with two commercial breaks and somebody's writing their lines? Um, I never learned it. No way. How many great relationships have you seen in your life? When I ask people that question, they say, oh, gosh, I mean, really great ones that you really right, knew. Right. They say none. And so in my book, one of the things I talk about <laughs> is a chapter called Snipe Hunting. And when I was a kid, they would tell us, the teenagers would co- tell us, let's go snipe hunting tonight. Show up with a flashlight and a paper bag. And you'd show up and you'd say to the teenagers, we were probably seven or eight, they'd say, okay, go get a snipe. And i say, what's a snipe look like? And they say, well, we, we don't know, but you'll know it when you see one. And they would send us off to look for snipes. That was kind of a joke. The teenagers must have been laughing their butts off as we walked around looking for snipes with our flashlights and, you know, bags trying to have the teenagers like us because, you know, when you're eight, that's the biggest thing in the world. But that's what looking for a great relationship is. We're trying to find this thing we've never seen. Never. And so when people say one in two marriages, two in three marriages end in divorce and they think that's a lot, I'm like, what do you mean that's a lot? Why, don't, why doesn't every marriage end in divorce? Hell, I can barely get along with me. How do you expect me to get along with you?
2: <laughs> right. So, you know,
1: when we get right, right down to it, relationships are complex and difficult and scary and intimate and life threatening in terms of the emotional pain I will suffer when you reject me for whatever reason.
2: TED Talk, one of the people that you talk about as being able to do this, have these extremely difficult, painful conversations, I think, um, but do so beautifully and masterfully is this Daryl Davis, Darryl Davis. Mm-hmm. that goes to these Ku Klux Klan. He's a black musician, plays with this band, plays at Ku Klux Klan events. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? That's what he does. And, and so how does he, I mean, how does he engage and get in these conversations right with KKK people where he's right. connecting or where they're able to do the, those things that you talked about, be of equal status conditions. and, yep. yeah. Yep.
1: He meets those three conditions. You know, when I think about it, so people don't know if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm Jewish by looking at me, unless you grew up in the East Coast and you see my nose and you say, oh, okay, that guy's a Jew. Um, but out here in, in, the, in the West, there's a lot of folks who have never met a Jewish person, so they don't, they don't connect that to me. And when I talk to them or when I hear bigotry, anti-Semitic bigotry, And I share with them, you know, you're talking to a Jew. And they're like, oh. What I realize is they don't hate this Jew. They hate Jews or they're confused by Jews. And what I think Daryl Davis does is when he meets people, the people he meets hate blacks. But they don't hate that black. If we had a chance to meet all the people in the world with all the differences, the truth of the matter is that in places where there are more differences in people, those are the places with the least amount of prejudice in places where there are no people of that different group, where there's more prejudice. The idea that we could meet and connect in equal status, sharing intimate beliefs, in an atmosphere of cooperation, if we could somehow forcibly do that, like the U.S. military did in the 50s, prejudice goes down almost every time, even when people disagree. It's fascinating because, again, I, I believe we're good. So at our heart of hearts, when I meet you, if I've never met a person who's black or brown or gay or trans, and I sit and talk with you, I cannot fail but to love you. When I finally get to know you, when I know your heart, I end up loving you. And I, think, and I think if people who are anti-Semitic end up sitting down with me and thinking, you know, he can be a little obnoxious, he can be a little abrasive, but I don't dislike him, but they'd have to meet a lot of me. Now, if I feel the stereotypes of the things they dislike about my group, it could increase prejudice. So an N of one, meeting just one, may not be enough. So how do we force people to meet people that they've never been around? I don't have the answer to that one. But I I bet you're on to it. I mean, that's That's the direction we have to go. Right. Yeah, it's connection. Because people are good. I think we want to like each other. We want to get along and we want to learn. And you know what I know? I can't learn from people who think and act and smell and eat all the same foods I eat. I can only learn from people who are different from me. I already know what I think. And I know what the people who are like me think. So I have to hang out with people who are vastly different. And again, that's counterintuitive.
2: How do we go against how we're hardwired? There's, there's, there's this, you know, two, there's twofold to this. One is we, ought, we have a hardwired aversion to pain, mm-hmm. to conflict, mm-hmm. to anything that we see as a threat, mm-hmm. which is something that's different. So how do we go against this hardwired
1: circuitry? Okay, For, first I would, I would argue in a way um, that it's not hardwired around differences in people. It's hardwired to want to avoid pain. Yes. And that pain, yes, that's, that's is, that pain right. is learned right. through experiences that we're either taught um, or not taught. And so I think if you take a group of 50 preschoolers age three and four, they're not looking at color. They're saying, will you be my friend? No. Will you be my friend? No. Will you be my friend? No. Will you be my friend? Yes. Yippee! And you forget all about those first three that said no. <laughs> right. And it doesn't matter the gender or the color of that child or whether or not they're in a wheelchair or can't yes. see. Yes. They yes. wanna connect. So I think as a species we want to connect.
2: When you say that it reminds me of I worked in a little Southside school, little elementary school, Title I, seventy-three percent poverty in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And this fourth grade teacher, there there was a kiddo who was had Asperger's syndrome. And this is the days where, you know, we integrate as many things as we can into the classroom. So even if you're someone that might have, you know, quote unquote a disability. Mm-hmm. We're working on inclusion. And this teacher, very first day of school, explains to the class what it is and why why this particular kiddo may be acting different. He, you know, he'd do the hand flapping and kind of some rocking and things like that. That classroom nurtured and loved and accepted there was no difference. It it was wonderful. And I have always stayed in touch with that student. Mm -hmm. That student's 20 years old Mm -hmm. now. He actually came to my 50th birthday party Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. summer. And to see how amazing, I mean, he's so bright. He's in college right now, social. He drove down by himself Mm -hmm. to a group of strangers Mm -hmm. that he'd never met and visited with people at the party, Mm -hmm. was Mm interactive. And it came, I'm telling you, from that fourth grade experience of inclusion.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's to say nothing of the other kids who were in the class who had an experience that they could then um, use as a template for what it's like to be be with people who are different.
2: I mean, the concentric circles that went out from that experience are huge. Right. And
1: and I think the piece that's so brilliant about what's going on in this country right now, not that this is a political show, um, but the personal for me is the political. It's all part of my religion, my psychology, and um, who I am, it's all wrapped together. And for me, what's happened is we've been split into two categories of, um, we call it right and left, if you want. But the truth is, we all pretty much agree on what we want. We all want clean water to drink, a place to sleep at night to feels safe to us, um, we want a chance at an education if we wanted one, we probably want wireless internet, food to eat that's decent, maybe some kind of transportation of some sort. And the opportunity for the children of the world to have a life that's better than the one that we might have had so when you take the right and the left and you put them together our goals are all the same the challenge is that we're looking at different ways to get there but the only way that we'll figure that out is if we sit down and talk to each other um, in humanizing ways in ways to say i respect your different opinion from me and like i said earlier i can't learn a darn thing from people who think like me i need to sit down with people who don't think like me and the counterintuitive piece of that is that that will that might be painful And if I can open up my heart and say, you're a human being, we're looking for the same things, how are we going to get there? Then I think we have a shot. And so the fact that we're separated is just bizarre to me, because I've been all over the world. I've been all over this country. I've been to the poorest parts of the United States. I've been to the poorest parts of the world. I've been to Nicaragua. And I've been to Cape Town, South Africa, where there are super poor folks. I've been to Vietnam, where folks are really poor. And you know what? We're all looking for the same thing. We just want to feel peace in our hearts and love in our hearts, clean water to drink. All those things I said earlier. Um, when I was born, uh, Jewish kids get a Hebrew name. Now, we're not religious Jews. We were ethnic Jews. and I'm 96.2% Ashkenazi. I don't know what that means, to be honest with you. I haven't really hardly looked it up. I know it's a tribe of Jews. Okay. That's how not religious Jewish I am. But my parents gave me a Hebrew name, and the Hebrew name they gave me it was Melech Shalom. And what that means is King of Peace. And it's really a beautiful name, and you're probably the 10th or 12th person I've ever even told this to in my entire life. And when I think about that name, I think that's exactly what I've always wanted in my life. I've wanted to get along with, with everyone. And I think that it's a possibility because I've been able to do it. That doesn't mean I've agreed with everyone. As a matter of fact, I'm really good right. at disagreeing with you. And so we can disagree with that, but we can do it kindly and compassionately without throwing rocks at each other. And I just really believe that that's a possibility on this planet. And I, I have six children. I brought six people into this world. And I brought them into the world, partly because I believe that we're a good species and we're going to be good and we're going to solve all the stuff that we're struggling with right now. And I will continue to believe that, at least as long as I have uh, any breath inside these lungs.
2: That name, say it again.
1: Melach Shalom, King of Peace. Melach Shalom. Well, it could be King of Hello and Goodbye, so I'm not really sure about (laughs) it, but I don't want to think of it as King of Peace.
2: (laughs) But I, I feel that really does describe you. I mean, that's then been your life journey. That's
1: what I... It's what I've believed and what I want. And even in my house, my parents fought. My parents got divorced when I was four. So I grew up with four parents. And I was that kid that when they would start to fight, I would start to sing a song and distract them or tell a joke or a story because I hated to feel the violence in the house that that wasn't, wasn't good for anybody. And to this day, my parents are still alive, which I'm really happy about. Mm-hmm. And when they come to my house, I call it the peace zone. And if they start to fight or bicker, which their relationship is based on, I say, you will get a one-way ticket back to DIA and sit there for three days until your flight comes because I'm not going to have that in my home. And they laugh and we play and, uh, and they feel that the peace is possible, even with each other, even in their 80s. And it's, it's nice to watch.
2: And it sounds like a piece of that journey for all of us is the ability to look inside of ourselves. Right. See right. where we have right. these limitations. See where we're projecting out or projecting in, if you will, sure. this prejudice. Sure, and this is not to say I'm not prejudiced. Right. I am. Right. No, but no, to be I aware am. of those and to be aware of how then we're interacting with other people, how we're maybe projecting those outward, and then being able to sit down if we have offended someone, if it has mm-hmm. impacted mm-hmm. someone mm-hmm. in a negative way, right, to be willing to be open enough to check our ego enough so that we can engage in that conversation right, and, so, and heal it between right. us, heal that gap between us. Right.
1: So that when you give me feedback, I say thank you, not screw you. Yeah. And we hang in there with each other and talk because we care, because I think we're good.
2: Hey, I'm Jack from the radio show Punk Rock Demonstration, heard here on NOCO.FM every Tuesday and Friday, 10 p.m. to midnight Mountain Time and 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Pacific Time. You can expect to hear punk rock, some interviews of your favorite bands, maybe some future favorite bands, and me ranting and raving, which is the best part of the show. You can tune in over your web browser at
1: noco.fm
0: or through the TuneIn app.
1: That's Punk Rock Demonstration.
0: Next time on The Spark... There's nothing to describe how cold death is. You will never carry anything heavier than your own child's gasket. We discuss grief and loss with parents Tad and Jonah Johnson whose daughter Alexa was killed in an accident five years ago, and how they've used their grief to create an educational organization in her name called Alexa's Hugs. Next time on The Spark.
2: So we're back with Mark Ben. I wanted to visit with you a little bit just on a personal level because I really resonated with the part in your story, and, and you, you mentioned it earlier today, when you were talking about feeling self-conscious as a kid, like not wanting people to sit beside you. How how did that early teasing affect you and how you saw yourself in the world? And then what did you do to move beyond that and to heal that within yourself?
1: First off, I think it's really important to recognize that I wasn't the only kid who got teased. I think every kid gets teased. Uh, Young people are in a lot of pain from a life experience of being oppressed as children, not getting a choice about when they go to sleep or what clothes they get to wear or when they get to eat or what they get to eat. So kids are a pretty oppressed group. And what happens for any oppressed group is often their pain comes out on themselves or the group closest to them. And so the fact that kids tease each other is not uncommon. I just uh, get to have my own experience around being teased. And the way I dealt with it is I I think I learned how to be funny early in life. I figured if I could make people laugh, they weren't going to want to beat me up, which I think is pretty universal for Jews as a group. Um, By and large, if you look at a lot of comedians, there's a lot of Jewish comedians. And I start to think as a sociological observer of culture, why is that? And I think what we figured is maybe if we made people laugh, they wouldn't want to kill us anymore. That hasn't really worked very well as I'm looking around the world right now. Um, So I don't know why they think we're so smart because that was our strategy and it's clearly not the best one. But I think, you know, teasing aside, that learning how to connect with people through humor is something that I thought would be helpful to me and it was something that I, I tried to use and I think I did use and it worked. It didn't mean that people wouldn't laugh at the size and the shape of my nose and my ears, they did. I'm still very jealous of the fact that people grew into feeling like they're okay with how they look. Uh, lots of people never get there. I certainly never got to a place where I look at myself in the mirror and think, wow, I look okay. I've always seen that little kid with a big nose and funny ears. That never left me. The same thing true with a lot of people I work with who had weight issues as young people. They go into their adulthood, they might grow into their body and lose the weight issues, but they always feel like still they struggle with being overweight. It happens a lot for women. They come in my office and they sit with pillows over their laps, and I ask them, why do you hold that pillow over your lap? Are you worried that I'm going to see your stomach while you sit? And they say yes.
2: And the same is true. So, as, as you're saying this, you know, I, I think about when I've talked with someone of color, you know, whether they're black or Hispanic, and that's not something that you just go, oh, well, I'm I'm over it. I'm over mm-hmm. it that people mm-hmm. tease me mm-hmm. about it, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. now I can accept that. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's like, how do we learn how to to feel comfortable in our own skin well, and and could... accept accept those things? Because part of it, I mean. Yeah. I, I still don't have a tiny nose. You know, I, I, I had to accept that this is how I look, right. too. Um, but there's things that we can't do anything about. Right. And how do we come to peace with that within us?
1: Well, if I could answer that in this uh, interview, I would have to charge you way more money for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I think there's other factors at play here. It's not just how we look. I mean, that's on a personal level. But if I can't get housing because of the color of my skin or the name Uh, that I use or because I have an accent or because my partner happens to also be male. If that's my life experience, then this is not just about how I look. It's about a system that's been put in place that keeps me oppressed and keeps me from being able to buy a house that you might be able to get that I can't even though we have the same amount of money. So for me, this, this, is, uh, this is much bigger than just how we look. On a personal level, how I look was, uh, was a critical piece. I wanted to be attractive to, uh, to the gender I was sexually attracted to. I don't know who doesn't want that. I right. think everybody wants that. Yeah, uh, And so we have a disproportionate focus on how we look. And unfortunately, there's nothing I was ever going to do to make that better for me. And so I had to come to peace with this is how I look. And hopefully, I can acquire skills that make me attractive to people not based on how I look, because I was never going to get there on that one but I might be able to get there on being a better human being.
2: Not to take this into a bullying arena by, by mm-hmm. any means, but I, I think the things that you're saying are, are so important that all kids are teased, all mm-hmm. kids are bullied. I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter, they'll, they'll find something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the things as I was thinking about this interview that struck me are, are what are resources that people can use that are struggling
1: with this? I think the, the goal here is to feel like we matter. And feel like we belong. And so one of the resources is that we help people get a place in their life where they feel like they matter. Never underestimate the power of giving somebody a chance to feel like who they are is important to at least one other person in the world. And I think we can do that in our classrooms. I think we can do that in our communities by helping young people feel like they matter. And the fact that we're all gifted in some certain way, and that certain way may not, be, uh, may not benefit you financially in this culture. As a matter of fact, because of sexism and racism, there are certain skills that certain people have that will not benefit them economically and might lead them to think that they're not that talented. If I'm talented in being able to put a, basket, a, a basketball in a, in a hoop 10 feet above the ground, I'm gonna make a lot of money in this culture. But if I'm talented in a way that understands the world through the eyes of a child, because women are the ones who have had those jobs, I'm going to make $10 an hour. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that our value is connected to a dollar sign is very, very important for us to figure out, to get rid of, in my opinion, to understand that I am valued not just by how much money I have or what kind of car I drive, but because as a human being, I'm good and I'm kind. And if you help me feel like that matters, as opposed to getting an A on a test or or creating a product, then, then maybe some of this will start to shift.
2: ago, I had an experience with a woman who was involved in Rachel's Challenge, if you're familiar with that. So Rachel Joy Scott was the first student that was shot and killed at Columbine back in 1999, I believe it was. This woman that I met, it was just by chance, it was through a mutual friend, but she had just gotten done doing one of these Rachel's Challenges at one of the high schools here locally and that is so such a powerful program for understanding not only bullying but how we can have empathy it builds compassion empathy tolerance understanding it's just it's an amazing program and it was so impactful for me the story that she shared there were there were two particular students in one of these groups they do these like 6 hour breakout groups with like a, the 10th grade They'll, they'll be in the school for like three days. I don't know if this all takes place over the weekend or, or exactly how that works, but the amazing thing about it that, that she shared with me are these two boys who are from diversely different groups. One was a complete loner, dressed in black, dark circles under his eyes, pretty pale skin. The other kid was one of the big players on the football team. Well, they end up in this process group together and get to know each other. Towards the end of the this workshop, these three days, the boy with the circles under his eyes said, you know, this has been amazing. I feel really connected to you, he's saying to the football player, but I'm scared that you're not going to say hi to me Monday when we come back to school in the hallway. And they had had this conversation. Well, interestingly, at the wrap-up assembly with the whole school, the kids had a chance, whoever wanted to come forward and talk into the mic and share their experience. And the football player steps up to the mic. And he says, I feel like I really need to share this because we'll call this this guy Tommy. Tommy says he was afraid that I wasn't going to step up and, and say hi to him, give him a high five in the hallway, not acknowledge him. He goes, but I'm here to tell everyone here that I'm going to see him and I'm going to say hi to him in the hallway. Because the thing that none of you guys know, you pass by Tommy in the hallway and you might think, oh, he's dressed in, you know, not very clean clothes and he's got bags under his eyes. The thing that you guys don't get is the reason he has bags under his eyes is his mother has stage four cancer and he's up at night with her. He's the only kid. She's a single mom. He's holding her hair while she vomits.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He's up all night with her. Mm-hmm. So until you are behind his eyes, stop judging him. Right. Right. I'm, I'm giving him, I'm giving Tommy a high five.
1: So powerful. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's what I was trying to say earlier that when I really get to know you and your story, I can't help but love you. When I really understand the shoes you walk in and this idea, you're talking about compassion and empathy and understanding the world through the eyes of another that only happens when we sit down like you and I are right now and start to talk to each other and get to know each other. And you understand why I wear all black or you understand why my head is shaved this way. And you understand why I have that tattoo. And when I get to share that with you, you get to know me better. And when you get to know me better, then we connect and we we grow closer and hatred goes away. Prejudice disappears.
2: Well, I've always felt like that's one of the gifts of the job that you and I both have, Mm -hmm. that we get to sit and be present and and to witness people's stories Mm -hmm. and then to be able to connect and love people Mm -hmm. at that level. Mm -hmm. I I, I wish everyone could have that experience of being able to, once you know someone's humanness, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you can't help. But connect with them, right? Because we've all felt pain, we've all suffered, we've all felt joy, mm-hmm. and when you can get that, no matter who you're walking by in the street, they've they've experienced those same things too. Uh, one of my last questions, the thing that your talk made me do, I mentioned this earlier, was get you know really reevaluate and look at how am I prejudiced? Mm-hmm. You know what, what have I what have I done? And I actually I saw your TED talk. You sent it to me right after it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a while. So this this process hap- happened a while ago, and one of the places where I was able to notice it because I work in an Old Town, you know, um, there's a lot of homeless people. I noticed that I I would start to get really bothered when I walked by homeless people. I didn't want them to talk to me. I didn't want them to ask me for money, and I just started resenting that I would see homeless people, even though. It, you know, if I was to reevaluate, I'd be like, well, I have compassion for that. Mm-hmm. But it, it was just in my face, in my face. And when I thought about it a little bit longer after listening to your speech, I thought, you know what? It's because I'm afraid. I was afraid of not only, you know, them asking me for money. I, I can give money. That's not the issue. Part of it is I'm afraid. I, I don't want to ever see myself there. I'm afraid of this unknown, and so that was really transformative for me. And, and so what I've started to do instead is if someone says hi to me that's, that's a homeless person, I genuinely smile and say hello.
1: And, again, you, you help them feel like they might matter. Yeah. Uh, to, to see somebody and say hello to them is important. And it doesn't mean you have to give money, number one. No, yeah. And transients are at a pretty low level in this country in terms of class, obviously. And for me, it's, again, about pain. So seeing a transient person and looking them in the eye puts you in pain. And back to the idea that as a species, it's counterintuitive for us to go towards pain. We want to get out of pain. So the way we get out of pain is we say, let's just get rid of all these transients. Let's just get rid of them. And they create policies in this town to get rid of homeless folks. They build a new restaurant in a place where they used to sleep in a park just down the road from where we're sitting right now. And the idea that I hear people say, well, look at the shoes that person's wearing. They have nice shoes. My thought is, well, if I'm getting to walk around all day, I hope I have nice shoes. Well, look at that backpack they carry. And I think, well, I hope they have a nice backpack because everything they own is in it. Their whole life is that. And so the idea that that people want to avoid pain is critical. The idea that we want to just get rid of these folks is, is, um, it would be easier for us. It is painful to see somebody in that much pain. And I don't like seeing people in pain. And I also don't feel like I can go around and hand $10 out to every person I see. Now, I work with a lot of folks in this town in my private practice. I work with this one particularly beautiful, wonderful millionaire who's very, very sad and very depressed, but he's a multimillionaire and just a really good man, and he drives his car around, and he has a stack of $50 bills in his console, and every time he sees a transient or homeless person, he gets out of his car and he hands them a $50 bill, unless they have a dog, and then he hands him 100. That makes him feel like he matters, and so his giving is actually helping him get no doubt. Because he feels disconnected even though he has lots and lots of money and has a better TV to watch than you and I. So back to the idea of mattering, it's not just about having money or having a small nose. or It's about having us all figure out ways to connect with each other. on a planet that has us often disconnected and in competition, especially a, a white culture is pretty competitive. Other cultures are not as competitive as ours. So for me, it's about learning how to connect, learning how to deal with conflict, learning how to figure out where the good teachers are. And I have a quick little story. I think yeah. about, I th- I think about how, how we learn in this culture. And so I think about being a kid in kindergarten, I think about the teacher pulling out crayons and pencils and papers and saying, it's time to draw today. Now, if you said that to a class of eighth graders, they'd be, oh, crap, I don't want to draw. I stink at drawing. But when you're in kindergarten, you're like, "Yahoo! we get to draw today. We're going to draw. <laughs> and the art teacher kindergarten teacher says to you, we're going to draw a picture of a tree today. Now, there's two different art teachers you might have. First our teacher says, here, we're going to draw a picture of a tree, and you start to draw a picture of a tree. Now, you're six, so you're not really very good at drawing pictures of trees. And the teacher walks around and looks at your tree, and she or he might grab the pencil or the crayon out of your hand and say, that's not a very good tree, let me show you how to draw a tree. And they draw a tree right next to the crappy tree you just drew, and as they draw that picture of the tree, you look at your tree, and you look at the teacher's tree, and you don't like your tree very much. And the next day, they say it's time to draw. You're less likely to want to draw. That's the art teacher that most of us get. The art teacher that I want us all to get is the art teacher that walks around the classroom after you draw your picture of a tree, and she or he looks at your tree and says, oh, my goodness, look at your tree. Your tree is upside down. That tree is sideways. Your tree is purple. I never saw a purple tree, and oh, my goodness, the leaves don't attach anywhere to any branches on this tree. What an amazing tree. I love your tree. Draw another picture of a tree. And so when I get that art teacher, I want to draw. I don't want to feel stupid. I want to feel happy about the colors and the kinds of trees I draw because there are lots of different kinds of trees. And so unfortunately what we live in is a world that says there's a right way to draw a tree and a wrong way to draw a tree and if we can be in a culture that says there are many different ways to draw trees it will make us want to go to school, it will make us want to embrace difference, it will make us want to connect with each other in ways that bring us together and solve the problems that we have because like I keep saying over and over again, we all have the same goals, that transient person has the same goals that I have. We all have the same goals, clean water to drink, somewhere to sleep at night to feel safe, someone to love me and love back, chance in education, maybe wireless internet, TV show I like to watch once in a while, warmth in the winter and cool in the summer. And so if we all have these goals, I struggle to understand why as a species, why as a culture, why as a country as rich as ours, we can't help make that happen for all of us because I really believe that it's possible. And I'd like to see it happen before I die, but I'm 62. I'm not sure that's going to happen. But maybe I can just dream today that um, that my children will live in a world that says your, your tree's absolutely perfect, just like it is.
2: After my initial conversation with Mark Ben, there were still more questions I wanted to ask him, And so I was able to catch up with him via Skype. And here is the rest of that conversation. Going into your personal history a little bit, I'm curious, what influenced you towards pursuing a path to becoming a psychologist in the first place?
1: I grew up in a big East Coast city um, where sports was a major focus of life. Some people went to church. We went to sporting events and did sporting events. And I always knew that I was gonna be short. And so I learned that if I could play sports really well, being short didn't matter so much. And so I compensated for being short by becoming a great athlete at a very young age, especially on a basketball court, which is ironic given that my, the tallest I've ever been is five foot four. And um, when I got to high school and nobody was calling me for athletic scholarships, I realized that maybe I'd have to figure out something I was actually able to do. That didn't involve sports since I didn't think I was going to make it in the NBA by the time I made it to 10th or 11th grade. And so I um, I had to examine what I was good at. And there was only one thing in life I was ever good at, and that was hanging out with people. And the only career that I think works for just purely hanging out with people without doing anything much more than hanging out is uh, is psychology. So now I get paid to hang out with people, which is pretty cool. Who
2: were, who were the biggest influences in your life, both personally and professionally, would you say?
1: Well, the biggest influence Easily, uh, certainly early in my life was my mother who was a feminist before there was a word for feminism. She was a a single mom by the time she was 21 with two kids ages three and four. She um, had to go out and work for a living and find a way to make it with two little kids without much support back before there was anything like preschools or anywhere to put your kids. And so I learned about what being assertive is and what being strong is from my mother. She taught me very young that you didn't have to be big and tall and strong or have a penis to be strong. You could actually be strong just by having your voice, being smart, and asking for what you want when you need it and setting limits when you needed to. And so she was probably my biggest early influence, no question. And uh, still, she's still alive. She, um, Thank goodness she um, she continues to be a strong influence in in my life and in most of the people's lives that she touches. And this is a woman who dropped out of high school because she got pregnant and uh, and made a life for her two sons, telling us always that we were going to have a better life than her and we were going to go to college while we watched her. And my stepfather worked two and three uh, blue-collar jobs making very little money. So that was the biggest influence that said, go to college, do something um, with your life that has meaning, which was something that my parents didn't get a chance to do. Um, they just needed to make money to bring it home so we could you know, have food to eat and have somewhere to live. So that was my biggest, earliest influence.
2: What an inspiration! Yeah, yeah,
1: she's an amazing woman.
2: Who else along the way? I'm I'm curious. Were there mentors that you had? I mean, whether it was through high school, college.
1: I th- I think it's true when 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 people say it takes a village. It certainly takes a village to feel like you matter, to feel like you belong. And so I'd say early on in my life, it was coaches. Um, they taught me both good things and bad things. They taught me that you could get people to do better by beating the crap out of them. That worked for some people. It never worked for me. Um, Or they could get people to do better by saying, hey, you're working really hard. Why don't you try this? Uh, Using more encouraging messages. So I learned from both, actually. Um, But I always leaned towards people who were tender, kind, and loving, um, and direct at the same time. Um, So coaches were a big influence in my early life. And then when I got to college, I I found a couple of professors to hook my wagon to. And I knew who the good ones were. And I knew who the ones that were... Um, brought into my life to teach me. So I had a young hippie professor that taught me to be still very early in my life. I thought he was crazy. Um, he would actually have us sit in class sometimes and meditate for an entire hour. Uh, I thought I would go crazy the first few times. Uh, sitting still is not one of my strong suits. And uh, and he taught us that if you could learn to not think for a minute or two minutes at any point in your life to not think to absolutely not think that that would be the equivalent to a college degree. And again, I thought he was high. I mean, I thought he was crazy. But it really taught me that being centered and being calm and finding a spiritual base was a critical piece to having a great life. And then I had a, a strong woman, a woman named Carol Ludy, at the University of Northern Colorado, and an a African-American man named George Tate, who uh, who short, sort of took me under their wing, and they they let me know that I mattered, and that even though I wasn't, in quotes here, as smart as the other doctoral students, that I had a blue-collar mentality and an ability to connect with people that made them want me to stay in the doctoral program there when other professors weren't as fond of my skills or my uh, my different abilities.
2: So you had something that that truly kept you going in these people, seeing you, valuing you, helping you see the value in yourself.
1: Yes. And in that way, I certainly know that I'm not unique. This is what we all need. This is what the children of the world need. This is what poor people need. This is what people with disabilities need. This is what uh, strong white folks need. Uh, we all need someone that believes in us and thinks that we're okay and that we actually have some skill or some talent in something that is valuable and meaningful. And so I had people all along the way who, um, from my mother and my stepfather to my football and, and, and soccer coaches and basketball coaches, all the way to graduate school where I and under, undergrad and graduate school, where I, I found all these, uh, I don't know, I feel like all the all the mentors I had, all the people who really led me, were the uh, the misfit kids in some way. I never really went the traditional route; that didn't fit for me.
2: As as you went through grad school, you became a psychologist. One one of the things that struck me when I was looking at your web page is talking about, and and I've experienced this, and I hear this feedback. You know, I've sent you a lot of couples, and I'll be working with someone in that in that couple, and they'll come back and go, "Wow, you really did name." Mark Ben for you know you gave me kind of a bit of who he was um and you were right you know what i usually tell people is you know mark is a straight shooter no bs tell it like it is therapist and that that's one of the things i really appreciate and admire about you and and try to emulate in some forms in my own therapy but you know on your website you talk about your form of therapy is this unique blend of humanistic and existential principles that have led you to be a reality therapist. So for people who aren't familiar with that term, what what exactly is a reality therapist?
1: Well, I'm not sure I fit the exact definition of uh, what Glasser meant when he wrote about reality therapy. But for me, what it means is that I'm um... I'm really not going to sit with people and hold their hands and have them tell me or have me look at them and say, it sounds like you're feeling sad or it sounds like you're feeling angry. And then they ask me, why am I like this? I don't spend a lot of time on why. I spend a lot of time on what and how. What's going on and how you are going to fix it? In the end, as psychologists, if we're not all behaviorists, then we're not doing our job because the whole... The whole mission for us is to help people change their behavior so that their relationships can be better, their jobs can be better, uh, the quality of life, the meaning that they find, uh, how they get along with their children or their parents. So for me, the reality is if you're doing something wrong, you need somebody to call you on it um, in a neutral, loving, kind, uh, supportive environment, which is what I think I do. I, I, I don't sit there and hold hands with people. My job is not to be friends with people. My job is to help people figure out what it is that's in the way of them having the life they dream themselves to have. To me, that's what the reality therapy is. I work with a lot of adult men, a lot of older men, 40 to 65, 70 even, and they did all the right things. They went to work, and they bought the car, and they paid the bills, and they may have coached their kid's soccer team, and they got two weeks at Lake Powell every year, and they did all the right things, but when their kids call, they say, hi, dad, how you doing? Dad says, fine, you want to talk to your mom. Yeah. And so I feel like white men especially have been lost in this mission of finding out how to emotionally connect to other folks. And so I spent a lot of my days sitting with older white men who wondered what went wrong in their lives when they thought they did everything right by not cheating or not beating or not gambling or not drinking too much, and yet people were not connected to them. And so the reality therapy that I do is I help people get in touch with that pain and that sadness, and I say the reality is you don't know how to connect, and I help men mostly, especially white men, figure out how to connect with other people in a way that feels deep and meaningful so that when they die, they're not, they're not alone, they're, they're with people around them. which is way more important than how big your 401k is, at least in my silly opinion. People ask me, why do you think I'm like this? And I always give them the same answer. I say, well, we, we probably don't know why, but let's just give it this one. Um, you got dropped on your head when you were two and nobody remembers. So let's go forward and figure out what the heck's going to happen from here instead of going back to figure out why. The old joke in psychology was a story about little Albert who was afraid of... Uh, white furry things. So he went to therapy for 15 years. And uh, after lots and thousands of dollars, he, he found out why he was afraid of white furry things. He was still afraid of white furry things, but now he knew why. And so for me, that story is very informative in terms of, so what, why? I mean, it's helpful, but I think psychologists have made a lot of money on why and insight. And I think insight is way overrated. I think our work is to not necessarily spend so much time understanding why, but again, understanding what Are you doing and how can you change what you're doing to get the life that you dream yourself to have? And as an existentialist, Stephanie, is this simple to me? And it's going to sound a little depressing, but it's not. We're all dying. Every minute I get is one minute closer to the last one I got, and I don't get any back, no matter how good or bad they were at the end. So, given that I'm dying, I want to make the most of this minute and every minute that I get. And that means with my patients at work, with my kids, with my spouse, with my family. And that's easy for those of us who have food, shelter, and water. Um, It's not as simple for folks that are spending their days trying to figure out where their next meal is coming from. And so I I have to really understand and appreciate um, the classism involved in the stuff that you and I are talking about.
2: So I'm curious, when you say that then, what would you say, though? How how would you help someone get to that point who is in poverty, who is... (laughs) struggling who who that's you know the main concern it's like maslow's hierarchy of needs if their main concern is food and shelter it's hard to get to you know the top of the pyramid which is self-actualization
1: well I, i again that's that's a really tough one because maslow's right you know i'm not writing books on how to cure cancer or figuring out how to cure cancer if i'm busy spending the day looking for food and so without those basic needs met which is why i'm a firm believer in a universal wage i'm a firm believer that on a planet that has enough food to feed everyone, we got to figure out a way to get there and get people food and shelter. Um, it's hard for me to imagine a country as rich as this one. We have people living on the streets. And so I'm an idealist. You know, I'm an old hippie. That professor I had wasn't so far from me back in that day when he told me to sit down and be quiet for an hour and mm-hmm. give me college credit for doing that and saying that it was valuable. Um, I'm a firm believer that, that we can come to a place where people on this planet don't have to go to sleep hungry anymore and that they have a place to sleep. And I think I said earlier I I've been to the richest places on this planet and the poorest places on this planet, and I've seen how both sides live. And uh, something feels a little inequitable about this process that we're in. And I, I say this sitting in the comfort of my of my nice warm house with a uh, with food waiting downstairs if I want to go get it. And so, how do people who are looking for food get there? I'm I'm not sure exactly. I know that when I've been at places where people are looking for food that. Uh, That that's all they can spend their day doing is finding food and finding meaning and spiritual center is is far down the list for those folks. So I think as a society, we have to come to a place where we accept that I'm kind of ignorant about other cultures and about gender, about uh, sexual orientation. And because I'm a curious person, I want to learn about people who are different from me. I can't learn much from people who are like me. So for me, it's always been about exploring differences and seeking differences out. And I think a lot of folks are kind of afraid of that.
2: So that kind of brings us full circle to the beginning of our conversation and, and leading into your TED Talk. How can people find you besides the TED Talk? How else can they find you?
1: Well, heck, I'm really little, so it's hard to find me. <laughs> um, I, I, I can get through a crowd and you never even see me. Unbelievable. I'd go through an airport better than anybody you ever met. So um, finding me would probably be using... Uh, as my kids teasingly say, the Google, Um, and if you use the Google and type in M-A-R-K-B as in boy, E-N-N, I think I'm the first Mark Ben that comes up. I I like when people reach out. I really do. I mean, connecting is all I've been about my whole life, whether it was as a little kid in school, or whether it was playing sports in school, or getting to college and graduate school, and becoming an RA, or a hall director, and taking psychology. The only thing that's ever interested me is people. They're wonderful, and unique, and crazy, and interesting as hell. So, so if people reach out to me from this interview, I'd be thrilled to respond and, and get back to folks. I, so I, I truly appreciate you giving me a chance to do this. I, I hope people listen. I, I hope it's, it's at least one thing out of it that's valuable. Anytime I read a book or watch a movie, I'm just looking for one line or one thing to take from it. And yeah. if I can get one thing from every hour I sit and listen or watch, then I'd be a lot smarter than I am right now, that's for sure.
2: Just like John Lennon said, people say I'm a dreamer. But I'm not the only one. All right.
1: Yeah, I guess we just put a couple old hippies here
2: talking to me, right? <laughs> <rain. laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. Glad to be here. I appreciate you being here. This Thanks. has been wonderful. Thanks, Stephanie. You know, I think that the important thing pack. that was coming through this interview is the importance of really all of us stopping and looking at ourselves, taking our own moral inventory, taking our own inventory of where where are those places where we don't stop and smell what's around us. Like Mark said, that, that might stink because that's not what we experience. If we're quote unquote, like he said, white and privileged, We don't always know that the air around us isn't smelling good. As we're talking with people that may be different than us and engaging with other people, being able to tolerate our differences and be able to lean into those more difficult conversations, those uncomfortable conversations, where we drop our egos and we're able to just say, help me understand what your experience was. It's it's different than mine. We all look at life through different lenses. Not one is the same. We're so much more alike than we are different. You know, we've heard that, it's, it's almost a cliche by now, that we all have some really basic human needs that all of us want. And it's worth it to stop, to ask, to be in connection with, with another human being. And through that, I think that's where we truly do realize that we have so much more in common. We have so many more connections than we'd ever imagine If we focused on those, If what we focus on is the differences between each other and what we don't like then that's what we're going to see so it's bringing it back to a deeper level where we're actually focusing on what do we like about that person where can i look inside that person and see something i can connect with and then allowing that to expand to me that's the gift that's a lot of what mark's message was about remember the spark is your show too if you have questions feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.